But you know, not everybody can be in the military. Not everybody's suited to be in the military. Not everybody wants to be in the military. Um, I had one brother who was and two brothers who weren't. And, and uh, that's just different personalities. But every single one of us is called to be a soldier for the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve him. And so we have been doing a series on grace. We've spent, um, well, today will make it a month. We've looked at, uh, at the, the theme verse for this passage was uh, uh, in, uh, can you put that up there? Uh, in Second Peter, the last verse of Second Peter. But don't turn there. We're not going to be looking in Second Peter. We're going to be looking in First Corinthians and then something else later. But uh, I want you to read this verse with me. This is the last verse that Peter wrote. The last communication that we have from Peter. Now, probably he talked to some people after this. He might have even written a note to somebody. But this is the last communique that we have from Peter. And it was a challenge to believers at large to be faithful in the midst of their suffering. And then he ends with this verse. Let's read it together, please. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Does it feel like He has the glory now? He does. How many of you have ever flown on a plane on a cloudy day? You know what happens? You're up in the clouds, and then if you get above the clouds, because sometimes you get to fly at 34, 35,000 feet, and you get above that cloud, and you can be in a dark, dark cloud, and you get above that cloud, and what? Brilliant sunshine, just blinding sunshine. I've been on a plane where as we cleared the clouds, you saw all these people going on their shades down the window, because it's just blinding on that side of the plane. That's what the world is like. It feels like God's not getting the glory, but he is because we're stuck under the clouds and he's above them. And we can live in a way that brings glory to him and we need to grow in grace. And this morning we're looking at the last part of the study on growing in grace and it is to grow in grace when others abuse your grace. Wow. Do people do that? Are, are there Christians who sometimes behave badly? No. Because when they're behaving badly, they're not being a Christian. Christian means to be like Christ. Are there believers who behave badly? Yes. Yes. I, I heard one pastor say, I know a lot of believers, but I don't know very many Christians. Christian is to act like Christ, and I was just being a little silly with that. No, yes, people who are saved and on their way to heaven can sometimes behave badly and sometimes hurt other people. And so we want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <coughs> We're going to read a few verses from chapter 5 and then also from chapter 6 in a little bit. And then we're going to show some connections between these. But first of all, we're going to spend a little bit of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Okay? Are you there? 1 Corinthians 5. Look down at verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle. Now, this is 1 Corinthians. So what other letter did Paul write to the Corinthians before this one? 
We don't know. The Holy Spirit didn't preserve that one for us. Uh, but, but we know that this one, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Are there a few sexually immoral people in our culture today? Yes, there are. But now Paul's going to define this a little more narrowly. He said, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's saying, don't isolate yourself from unsaved people. Some Christians do that. And by the way, some Christians homeschool. It can be good, it can be bad. Some people who homeschool don't really give their kids a good education, and some people who homeschool do it only to isolate themselves from the world. A good homeschooling situation, you would teach your kids very well, and then you would encourage them to be out and engaged in the world. We cannot isolate ourselves from the world. When I was pastoring in Sawarita a long time ago, um, I've been here 21 years, and that was before that. Uh, but when I was in Sawarita, there was a family who came to me all upset. Uh, they went to a different church, but their son went to a Baptist church. And so they called me to ask me if I could talk to their son because he had made the decision he was going to move his wife and kids to a farm in Alabama. It was all just believers, and it was going to be a community of believers, and they were going to isolate themselves from the world. That's not what God wanted. And I did talk with the son and his wife, and I shared with them from the Scripture, and they went and did it anyway and would no longer let their their grandparents see the grandkids, even though the grandparents were believers, they wouldn't let them see the grandkids because they weren't part of their community. There, there was an old joke that uh, somebody went to heaven and they're walking around looking at all the joys of heaven and they come to this big wall and Simon Peter says, shh, you got to be quiet while we go past this wall. And you get on the other side of the wall, the guy said, Peter, what was that wall for? And Peter said, oh, that's the Baptists. They think they're the only ones up here. (laughs) Now, honestly, I am a Baptist. I have made a choice to follow Baptist doctrine. I think the doctrine that we have in our church best explains what the Bible teaches. And we try and root it in the Scripture. But there are other believers out there not part of this group. But Paul's not talking about believers. He's saying, don't isolate yourself from the world, because if you try and get away from all the bad people in the world, all the sinners in the world, then you isolate yourself. You're like the guy who says, I only trust my wife and I and nobody else, and sometimes I wonder about her. You you have a connection to people in the world. We have to be careful not to isolate ourselves, because he says at the end of verse 10, since then you would need to go out of the world. You want to get away from sinners? Die. A believer goes to heaven, there's no more sinners around. Until then, you're going to be involved with them. But look at verse 11. Now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Pause right there. This is a person who is a believer. I said pause and you're still reading. Watch out. All right, this is a person who's a believer, a brother in Christ. 
And he's saying, here's what people in Christ can do. Can a Christian still sin? Yes. He can't be comfortable in his sin. The Holy Spirit will not allow that. The Holy Spirit will seek to bring conviction. But you could admit there were times when you've lost your temper or you've not been as disciplined as you should be or something. So he's saying, now I need to write to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Now, this is hospitality week. You're supposed to be hospitable. You're supposed to engage with other people and connect with somebody and encourage them in the Lord. If you don't have much money, you can invite them over for popcorn and, and water. If you can't afford the popcorn, I'll give you a little. Uh, you can uh, engage with somebody. If you say, oh, my house is too small, uh, you can meet them at the park and I probably every parent in here, this church who has young kids, if you said, would you meet me at the park if I bring a couple pizzas, I'm sure they would be glad to do that. But just do something hospitable. But, but, Paul's saying, if you know a believer who is engaging in immoral conduct, what does immoral conduct look like? Everything from viewing pornography down to an adulterous affair. Everything in between, lustful thoughts, lustful, who's participating in that. Not somebody who's stumbled, like we read earlier, somebody who's stumbled and fallen and you have to restore that person, but somebody who's choosing to live that kind of life. Or covetous. Now, it's okay to want things to be a little better than they are. I especially feel that when I think about our government. I think we have one of the greatest political systems in the world, but it could sure use some improvement. And I think about that with my car. It's running great. It's beautiful. We got 150,000 miles. It's more than half dead for that kind of car. But when you desire things, when you're covetous for things, um, so a believer who's caught up in these, sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, which covetousness and idolatry are linked in the scripture, or a viler or a drunkard or extortioner, don't even eat with that person. Don't invite them over to your house unless the purpose of having them over is so you can confront them with the truth of God's word and seek to bring them to repentance. Don't just pretend it doesn't exist. Don't just have them over, have fun, and let it go. And then he says in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside, outside the family of faith, non-believers, those who have not yet trusted Christ as Savior? Do not judge those who are, do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. So within the assembly of believers, there's a, a concept called church discipline. When somebody's behaving badly and causing issues, then they get put under church discipline. And in that church discipline, then you 
talk with them, the deacons and I try and get them to repent. And if they refuse, then we're supposed to bring it before the church and then we're supposed to remove them from membership. I have been here 21 years. We've done that once. But we needed to do it. They wouldn't recognize accountability to the congregation, to the deacons, to me, to the scripture. That's unpleasant at best, right? It's very awkward, but here's the first thing. Grace cannot excuse sin. And and there's a note sheet in your bulletin, and I've got a lot of notes on there. You can use that. Can you bring that up, Aiden? Uh, grace cannot excuse sin. It cannot excuse sin. So Paul said, when you know a believer who's choosing to live that way, you have to pull yourself back. You don't separate because you're too spiritual for them. You separate because you're trying to obey God and they're not trying to obey God. Okay, does that make sense? We explained that well enough? All right, now, this is a temporary thing because hopefully they're going to repent, right? Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor, I'm sorry, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So even people who used to be caught up in those sins can be completely forgiven. So yeah, we do need to separate from people. When people are abusing God's grace, we separate from them. If they're a believer, if it's a non-believer and they're caught up in sin, then you just try and show God's love and share his truth, anticipating they have not yet trusted Christ, but they might. But when it's a believer who's choosing to live in rebellion against God, you have to back off a little bit. You have to separate yourself a little bit. Very unpleasant, but very biblical. And so I want to show a contrast between these two passages of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 6, these verses that we've just looked at. So what I'm going to do is I want you to see the connections, and then if you're using that note sheet, you've got to write down how many connections there are. And, and let's look. First of all, uh, sexually immoral. Paul wrote in chapter 5, separate from a believer who's behaving immorally sexually. And then in chapter 6, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites. So he's saying, listen, within that church in Corinth, there were people who were cleansed from bad sins. Okay. How many of you, don't, don't raise your hand. I'm not even going to ask that question. Okay. You would be embarrassed if everybody knew every sin you'd ever done. You would be embarrassed. 
But when we come together to church, we don't pretend the sin doesn't exist. We come because by grace, God has forgiven the sin. And so we now connect with one another. And we realize when you see another person, if they're still alive on planet Earth, there's still some area of their life where they struggle with sin. You don't pretend it doesn't exist. So here's one of these connections between these two passages saying, separate from those people, but such were some of you. Now let's look at some of the other connections. Covetous. Idolaters. Revilers. Drunkards. Extortioners. How many connections did you count there? Six, yeah, I heard something else, but well, almost heard something else. <laughs> While I'm speaking, I can only have one hearing aid in, so I miss a few things. But, all right, are you look? listen, I want you to look on the screen. I want you to see this. Ne- this is the key, the next thing coming up. Look. She said, don't keep company with a brother who is sexually immoral covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or extortioner. But then in chapter 6, he says, such were some of you. So if they're doing it right now and not repenting of it, then you separate. But you got to realize, such were some of you. And, you know, sometimes with my kids, when, when my kids would get in trouble for behaving badly, I would feel guilty. And I would talk to Kathy about it because I was not a nice kid. And so I would feel guilty for correcting them when my kids were better than I had been. And she said, we're correcting them to God's standard. We do not want to correct them to your behavior. We want to accept them to God's standard. So let me tell you something, okay? If on that list of people, and I'm thinking some of you won't qualify for some of those things, right? But at some point in your life, every one of you will qualify for covetous. You saw something somebody else had, and you really wanted it, and you felt frustrated about it. Okay, maybe you were three the last time that happened. But at some point, that has happened to every one of us. And so, don't feel guilty about that. Just be grateful such were some of you. That's where you used to be. You're not anymore. And be gracious about that. But grace does not excuse sin. And secondly, grace does not ignore the truth. You see a scripture reference there in Galatians. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, then Galatians chapter 2. Paul's describing an incident he had with a person who's pretty well known, a person named Peter, who was one of the big guns in the early church. I mean, one of the first messages Peter preached uh, aloud and in public, uh, 3,000 people got saved. A little while later, he preached and 5,000 people got saved. Peter was potentially one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the church. Thousands and thousands. In fact, so many people were getting saved under Peter's ministry, they just started calling it multitudes after that. So Paul rebukes Peter because even a believer can stray a little bit. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11. Now when Peter 
had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. Now, in Jewish culture, they wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. They would have a separate table. So, like, in Jewish culture, in that day, if there was a public restaurant, they would have seating for Jews and seating for non-Jews. And so... Peter was now sitting with the non-Jews. He's sitting with the Gentiles. He's eating with them. But certain people came up from Jerusalem, and so he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. In verse 13, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. And when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I, he rebuked Peter to his face publicly. I say, well, isn't that a little harsh? Shouldn't he have pulled Peter aside, had a little confab with Peter and said, you know, Peter, I don't think that's good. And then Peter, because of change, because you don't really want to embarrass people, right? Actually, when Paul wrote to Timothy and giving instruction for how a church should work is that when when a, a person who's in leadership in the church when they have openly sinned you have to rebuke them before everyone so that all can hear and be corrected so Paul addressing Peter publicly and to his face then allowed the other people to hear and realize oh yeah we're not supposed to do that anymore. Jews and Gentiles are together in the church. And so grace does not ignore the truth. Paul didn't say, well, you know, Peter's such a good guy. Just this narrow aberration. We'll let that go because he's such a good guy. You know, churches sometimes do that. A church in Texas the deacons found out the pastor had kind of a double life. He was engaging in homosexual behavior while still being the pastor of a church. And they didn't do anything about it. And then uh, a reporter who happened to be gay saw the preacher in a gay bar and outed him and reported it. And they talked to the chairman of the deacons and he said, he was such a good preacher, we didn't worry about it. We don't have deacons like that in our church. Aren't you glad? There have been churches, oh, you know, we, who are we to judge? We don't want to put anybody down. So grace does not ignore the truth. In 2 John, the Apostle John said, if somebody is not teaching the truth, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for he who greets him shares his evil deeds. So if there was a known false teacher who happened to walk in here on Sunday and we had handshaking and you knew they were a known false teacher, you walk right past him, you don't shake their hand. If they corner you and get their hand out and grab your hand, then you say to them, you should repent. You should correct your ways. You don't just, hey, we're brothers in Christ. We'll all be in heaven someday. We're not going to worry about it. 
God cares about the truth, and so should we. So grace cannot excuse sin. Grace cannot ignore the truth. All right, here's something that's going to bother you. This next phrase is going to bother you. Okay, we'll explain it a little bit. Number three, God gives partial grace to everyone. God gives partial grace to everyone. Remember, God said the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. The sun rises on the just and on the unjust. That God gives partial grace to everyone. That partial grace includes the sunshine and the rain and the beauty of flowers. And uh, those of you who love to smell cut grass, then you can enjoy the smell of cut grass whether you're a believer or not. He gives all life and breath. He gives all the capacity to do things to enjoy life. A non-believer can enjoy a beautiful sunset just as much as a believer can, but for different reasons. The believer enjoys it as the beauty of God. You know, God can take dust and smog and create something beautiful. And we rejoice in our God as we look at that sunset, where a non-believer just enjoys the beauty of the universe. They can't comprehend that God has done this. But God gives partial grace to everyone. Now, but to receive the fullness of His grace, you must repent. To receive the fullness of His grace, you must repent. John the Baptist, Jesus, Paul, and Peter each called people to repent. They called them to repentance. They didn't say, hey, be uncomfortable, live a pretty good life, maybe you'll make it to heaven. No, he said, repent. We have to turn away from our sinful things. Remember, stay away from that person, but such were some of you. You don't arrogantly get over here and you say, oh, you're doing what I used to do, you sinful person. You don't do it that way. But you separate because God doesn't appreciate sin. In fact, the Bible says something very strong. God is angry with the wicked every day. Oh, but... But God loves us. You know, a lot of people think God is like a grandpa with no discernment. He just loves his grandkids no matter what. Does God love you? Does God love you no matter what? Yes, but he doesn't want you to stay there. To the woman caught in adultery, he didn't say, I forgive you, go enjoy it next time. He said, go and sin no more. Stop it. I'm not condemning you, but stop it. So God's partial grace goes to everyone, but the fullness of his grace is received by those who repent. And that's true for non-believers and believers. So if a believer is caught up in an ungodly lifestyle, fully and honestly repents, then they can move over into this group, such were some of you, and now they can be right with God and receive the fullness of his grace. But contemporary Christianity does not understand grace. In modern Christianity, people seem to think if something's wrong, you should just show grace and not tell them there's something wrong because you don't want to embarrass them. And you're not the Holy Spirit. 
If you think someone's sinning, you're just supposed to tell them that God loves them and then hope they'll get right with God and get over their sin. Because who are you to judge, right? We hear that a lot in our culture. Even, uh, or rather, according to several popular Christian writers, speakers, and bloggers, showing grace seems to mean you don't show any discernment. You must not recognize or acknowledge their sin. That is not God's kind of grace. Number four, even when God gives the fullness of his grace and pardons our sins, he does not remove all the consequences of those sins. So the woman caught in adultery was forgiven, but she was still an adulteress, right? And when the Bible mentions a woman named Rahab, what does it call her? Rahab the harlot. And you know, that was absolutely true when we first meet Rahab in Joshua. She was Rahab the harlot. But she became Rahab the forgiven. But then years later, decades later, centuries later, almost a millennium later, they're in the New Testament in Hebrews talking about Rahab. And they don't say Rahab, that transformed woman of faith. Rahab the harlot. That's such were some of you. That's where she was. But consequences of sin last a long time. David was forgiven. Nathan the prophet revealed it to him. God has forgiven you, but your son will still die. And his family had turmoil for the rest of his life. Paul was forgiven, but he still carried the scars for his sin for the rest of his life. He had haunting memories of what he did. And you can show grace and offer forgiveness to people without removing all of the consequences of their sins. It's a contemporary Christianity doesn't think that. They think, oh, when you show grace to people, you overlook sin. That's not how Jesus showed grace. Jesus strongly rebuked people when they were wrong about serious spiritual matters. In Mark 12, 27, Jesus told the Sadducees they were greatly mistaken. So, if you're in school and you write an essay and the teacher says to you, um, that was greatly terrible. That was horrible. Okay? Greatly mistaken. Now, would you expect to get 100 on that paper? What would you think you got? An F. Something well below a D. You were greatly mistaken, Jesus said to him. He didn't say, you know, guys, you're just not quite right. Maybe you want to think about this. He got in their face. With Peter, who did he say Peter was acting like when he rebuked Peter strongly? Satan. <laughs> Jesus said Peter was acting like Satan. How do you think that went over with Peter? Probably shock and maybe even outrage. But Jesus did the right thing. He told the Pharisees they were a generation of vipers. And he's not talking about that cool car, the viper. He's talking about those snakes that bite people, the vipers, the poisonous snakes. So 
even though God shows grace, and even though God pardons sins, he doesn't remove all the consequences of sin. To show grace does not excuse the sin or ignore the sin or remove all the consequences of the sin. Number five, the fullness of grace demands repentance. Demands repentance. Grace requires you to show kindness, to speak the truth in love. Grace requires you to minister to other people. But it also requires you to call them to repentance. Some of the fastest growing churches in the world never tell people they need to repent. They repeatedly talk to them about God's love and God's grace, but they do not call them to repent. That's not following the ministry of Jesus. That's not following the ministry of the apostles. Three times in Jeremiah, God told him not to pray for the people of Judah because they were in rebellion and God was going to judge them. And he didn't want Jeremiah trying to pray for the good of those people because God was going to judge them for their sins. Peter said God refuses to listen to the prayers of a husband who's not trying to meet the needs of his wife, who's not trying to cherish his wife. It doesn't mean she has to live in luxury where paid staff drop bonbons or grapes into her mouth. No, but it does say he has to cherish her and care about her and minister to her. And Peter said, guys, if you're not doing this, your prayers will be hindered. And the fullness of grace comes only to the repentant. It demands repentance. Aren't you glad you're saved by grace? Amen. When were you saved by grace? It was completed when you repented and asked the Lord to save you. It started before you were even born, before the foundation of the world. God planned his grace toward you. But it becomes effective when you repent. Number six, Jesus is the personification personification of grace. He modeled it for all time. But Jesus did not trust everyone. You can turn in your Bible to John chapter 2. Jesus did not trust everyone. In John chapter 2, we'll just look quickly at two verses Verse 24 and 25, But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in men. He knew what was in man. Jesus knew, so he didn't commit himself. He, he didn't trust everybody. In fact, in Jesus' life and ministry, you see Jesus drawing all the disciples together, a bunch of them, and he taught them sometimes. But sometimes he only called the twelve, the apostles, and he taught them certain things. And there were times when he taught the twelve and he said, don't tell this to anyone till after the resurrection. And then he had the three. He pulled Peter, James, and John apart. And so he had a closer group of three. So it's not like we're trying to hide. You know what cults do? 
cults have, you have to get to a higher level. You have to earn a higher level before they reveal more truth to you. And only when you're fully vested and fully committed will they reveal the whole thing. And there's lots of even churches that are so-called Christian, but that's not what they do. They hide things from you so they can get you in and get you engaged and get you involved. And then they reveal a little more and a little more. In Christianity, we don't have that. It's revealed to everyone. But in his personal life, there were certain things Jesus kept personal. There were things he only talked to God about. There were other things he talked to God and Peter, James, and John. And there were other times he talked to God and Peter, James, and John and the rest of the twelve. And there were times he taught to the rest of the disciples. And there were times he taught to all kinds of people. But he didn't trust everyone. In fact, when John was writing, John said in 1 John, you need to try the spirits to make sure they're of God. When you listen to a sermon, when you listen to somebody speak, you examine it according to Scripture and make sure they're following the truth of God's Word. The Apostle Paul praised the people in Berea because they checked up on him. When he preached, they went home and searched the Scriptures to make sure what Paul was teaching was accurate. And he praised them for it. Jesus was very selective with his trust. And I know I've shared this here before. I think it was earlier this year. Uh, but Dr. Henry Cloud, um, I don't endorse everything he writes, but he is a Christian psychologist. And he wrote about forgiveness that I think we can apply to grace. Okay, showing grace to people. But he has three things here. One, forgiveness has to do with the past. Forgiveness is not holding something someone has done against them. It's letting it go, and it only takes one person to have forgiveness. You just let it go. What I try and do, I leave it between them and God. If somebody's hurt me or offended me, try and leave it between them and God, because everybody answers to God. And then reconciliation has to do with the present. For reconciliation to occur, the person has to apologize and and then accept forgiveness. There has to be that repentance. So you can forgive somebody but still not want to be around them. You just are letting that go. God's going to judge them. But then to reconcile with that person, they have to apologize. They have to seek forgiveness. And then you can reconcile. And then the third thing he says is trust. Trust has to do with the future. It deals with both what you will risk happening again and what you will open yourself to. A person must show through his actions that you are trustworthy before you trust them again. All right. We're all called to show grace to other people. And, and by the way, we have had some very high quality, very trustworthy people serving as as treasurers in our church. But just because they serve as treasure doesn't mean we completely trust everything we do, they do. We also have somebody audit to make sure, somebody who does not sign checks or count money coming in or anything. They audit to make sure all of our transactions are accurate and occasionally we'll make a goof and we correct them. Did you realize that every person who's ever stolen from inside a company or inside a church has always been somebody trusted. There was a sweet little old lady, a church in New Jersey, 
And the church had struggled financially for years and years. And they, they did, just never quite turned the corner. And then she retired after serving for 30 years as their treasurer. And for some reason, they did an audit. They did an audit of the whole thing. And they found out that over those 30 years, she had stolen more than $350,000 from the church. No wonder they kept struggling. So we have checks and balances and multiple signers on checks and that sort of thing. Not because we don't trust people, but we don't trust people completely. In God, we trust. We can trust him completely, right? But um, Dr. Cloud adds, you could have a conversation that deals with two of these issues or all three. Um, You could have a boundary conversation. Forgive the one person for the past and then reconcile in the present and then discuss the limits of trust you would have in the future. Because showing grace toward people does not mean you trust everyone. That's not what Jesus did. He showed grace, but he didn't trust them completely. And and uh, Dr. Cloud adds another thing. A second chance is not a repeat of the first chance. A second chance is a moving towards something new. Uh, there must be something new and different. If everything's the same, you're just repeating what already happened. How many of you have had somebody ask you for a second chance? You, you were their boss or their parent or whatever, and they ask you for a second chance. And sometimes... They really mean it, and they start over, and it makes a difference. But some of those people who ask for a second chance, they don't want a second chance. They don't want to change. They just want you not to hold against them what they already did. A second chance is supposed to be new. So when we look in the Scripture and we see such were some of you, God gives second chances. He's a God of second chances. And yet the scripture also says that at one point Esau sought forgiveness and God said it was too late and he didn't get it. And a lot of people have this idea that after they die, then they'll be able to repent. And the Bible says you have to do it now. It's almost like there's an invisible line that only God can see. And you cross over that line and there's no room for repentance. And it said he sought it bitterly with tears. But God said it's too late. So we need to move ourselves into that such were some of you and not such are some of you. And if you're one of those people who are in the such are some of you, we need to back off in our relationship and you need to get right with God. Because showing grace does not ignore sin. Showing grace does not ignore the truth. We are called to bring people to repentance. Grace cannot excuse sin. Grace cannot ignore the truth. To receive the fullness of grace, you must repent. And showing grace will not remove all the consequences of your sin. Sometimes that sin leaves a lifelong mark. We were at the fellowship meeting a week ago, Friday and Saturday. And one of Pastor David Swope, he's a pastor at Calvary Baptist in Mesa. And his boy, Joseph, came up to me and he said, Check out my scar. 
and he showed me the scar on his finger. He was trimming wood with a pruning saw and slipped and missed and hit his finger. And I said, man, that looks bad. I bet you needed stitches, didn't you? He said, I did. Two. And, but he was proud of that scar. You know, spiritually, we can't be proud of scars. I've heard preachers bragging about how bad they used to be, but God in His grace has forgiven them. It would have been better if they'd been good and then God in His grace had forgiven them. The amazingness of God's grace is not an excuse to sin. Number seven, even in grace, you must set boundaries for your relationships and not exceed God's grace. There are times when you draw a line. There are times when you must separate. Now, there's lots of things in Scripture that sometimes seem to contradict. You know, um, but they're not contradictory. We just don't understand the fullness of it all. So, if you're in a situation, in a relationship, you're in family, and and let's just say that uh, you're married to a person who's covetous. Well, you're kind of stuck, aren't you? You can't move out. You pray for them to repent. If they're committing adultery, well, then you move out. I think there's some other reasons why you can move out. But when we separate from people, it's never, never with arrogance. It's always with sadness. Because God wants so much more for them. Some years ago, I was standing at my brother's grave. And I was just talking to God about it. And I told God something like, he had so much potential and he, and he he could have just made some changes it would have really changed the trajectory of his life and i felt the holy spirit say to me that's how i feel about you you have room for growth i have room for growth we need to get serious about following God. And don't just let grace be an excuse to just do whatever you want, whenever you want, because God is gracious. Get serious about God. Get serious about His grace. And try and show grace the way Jesus did, willing to give your life that others might be saved. Father, I honestly feel like I've done I haven't done as good a job as you could have done if you were explaining this to us. Nobody does as good as Jesus did. Father, I pray that if folks have questions and concerns, they'd be able to work through it as they look to your word and listen to your Holy Spirit. And I pray that every one of us would seek to repent of things that need repented of. 
that we would seek to show grace the way you show grace. That the sins in our own hearts and the sins of others would break our heart like it broke yours. You have so much great things in store for us. May we, by faith, walk in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.